For two plus decades now, Blue October has been stirring audiences. We've watched, followed, and loved them from the early beginnings of Hate Me to whatever they show us tomorrow. We bleed blue, and many of us have used that blue blood and this amazing music to get through our own experiences. It's always been there. Welcome to Just Sway, the blue experience, where your host, Lucas Peterson, takes on and shares everything Blue October. Let's Just Sway. John Bingham said, The miracle isn't that I finished. The miracle is that I had the courage to start. With the new year upon us, a lot of us use that as motivation to either start something new or maybe discontinue something bad. Habits such as eating healthy, exercising, organizing your life, volunteering, the list could be endless. And for some, including many of us Blue October fans who know and have followed Justin's story, whether we personally have an issue with it or not, we might choose sobriety. Either way, in today's world, it seems like so many of us have a close personal connection with someone who has made this choice. My name is Lucas Peterson, and welcome to Just Sway, Episode 20, Sober Powered with Jillian Teets. Whether or not you have chosen to live a sober life for yourself, or you know someone who has, the real miracle is always going to be in making that choice. In this society, with the ever-present influence of alcohol and its grip on our social fabric, living a life of sobriety is definitely not an easy thing to accomplish. But maybe, if you can understand more of the science behind the chemistries of our bodies and the influence alcohol has, that battle can be a little bit more manageable. My guest on this episode seeks to do exactly that. Remember, if you enjoyed Just Sway, do me a favor and hit that little subscribe button and you'll be notified automatically when a new episode is available. Also, I'd greatly appreciate if you left the podcast five stars. And if you don't feel like Just Way is worth five stars, let me know why. Send me a message. Tell me what I could do differently. That feedback is crucial, and I highly value it. And make sure to follow the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for Just Sway Podcast. It's a great way to follow the podcast and to stay in touch so tag the show, or drop me a line, and let's talk some more Blue October. Jillian Teets works as a scientist and is the host of the Sober Powered podcast. I first found out about her podcast through a random post from another podcast friend, Andrew. Shout out to Fort Worth Roots. Jill and I connected last fall, and I wanted to share this conversation in the hopes that maybe, just maybe, you either might be looking for more information on alcohol and sobriety, or you might know someone who is. It's a fundamental principle I have with this podcast in that when I can help share valuable information about key issues that are important to Blue October, I definitely feel an obligation to do so in the hopes that this information may reach someone who just may need it. And you'll hear that's a key principle for Jill as well. We both believe in the power of self and at the same time know that we, as podcasters, hold a responsibility to be a force for good in this world. So let's begin there with what was behind Sober Power. How did this quick-growing podcast with its now dozens of episodes get its genesis? You were 
just a like a split second decision. I was first writing a book actually, so I wrote I wrote 52,000 words of a book and then when I started looking into publishing and all that, I realized you kind of have to have a brand and a following for them to want to take a chance on you and even look at your book. So I thought, how can I build that up? And I started sharing on Instagram and whatever. And then I woke up one day and I thought I should start a podcast and talk about this stuff. And I just recorded it that day and uploaded it. (laughs) I really didn't have like, you know, like I said, I Zoom call myself. I, I really don't know much about what to do, but I'm slowly learning and well, that's good. It, it sounds like it's also uh, not only you're, you're, you have an intent for it, which is great. I love the way like you think about it as a whole with like the branding, mm-hmm. but you're, when I listen to you talking and it's very comforting, it's, it's soothing to listen to you because it's real and it's raw and you can tell that there's not this over kind of presence of, I, th- this might sound weird, but it's not overly scripted mm-hmm. or ton of, uh, you, you do your homework on it, but it's just, it's going to be me. It's going to be here. I know what I want to talk about. Here's the stuff I want to talk about. And you just get right to it. I love that about it. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. When we back up then a little bit in your story, and I listened to <laughs> the episode I listened to this morning, which I was like, wow was the when where you described the last time you drank. Mm. <laughs> that's a popular one. Yeah. I think it, it's probably, it, it's funny you say that's a popular one. It, the, first off, the title is very grabbing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you don't know anything else about the story other than it's like, okay, this is, this is new. This is real. And, and I mean, I had seen it on the other kind of episode titles that it was not terribly long ago. What, what are you going on? You're at like nine months or something? Yeah, so next week, really, I'll be nine months sober. And you don't know anything about that episode, but when you get into it, it sounds like any other normal kind of day until the end. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that was a normal day. There was nothing like exceptional or strange about it. That was a normal weekend. How do you explain where that final trigger was in there where you're like, yep, I've said this before, but this is it. Like, <laughs> what, was, what was that last domino? The last full year of my drinking was a huge mess. I was having massive anxiety. I was having those really scary suicidal thoughts, and that prompted me to do a 90-day sober challenge in the in the early spring and I did it and it wasn't a huge problem and the goal was to cure myself of my problem drinking ways and learn to moderate it was like a healthy reset so I went back to drinking and I did actually moderate for two full months I had two glasses of wine on Saturday night I didn't go to boozy brunch I went to brunch and I didn't drink. And it wasn't that I was white knuckling through it. I just didn't want to. And I thought like, wow, I really figured this out. I can moderate now. I'm cured. This is fantastic. And then we went on a cruise. 
And I thought, well, you drink all day on cruises and all night. That's what you do. Even on our tours during the day, we had free wine. And I thought I would just drink during my vacation and come back home and go back into moderation. And the vacation unlocked my old ways. And I I was right back to the beginning. I drank so much on that vacation. And then I came home and I was back to every single day and boozy brunch and drinking at night. And then when it started escalating again, into massive anxiety and suicidal thoughts, I knew this isn't a thing that will go away. I knew that it, I could never cure myself. And every time I drink, I risk overdoing it and then thinking about killing myself. And that's why I gave up. I chose, it was really like life or death at the end. And I know not everybody makes the same choice I did, but I, I chose to live really. Yeah. And, and you're, hitting so many themes that I think a lot of people can relate with, even if they're not as brutally honest with themselves mm-hmm. as you are, as you were, and, you know, as you described in that episode. One of the things that really caught me when I heard you say it, and I don't know if I've ever heard anybody else say this so succinctly, but you kind of realized that you had the problem that day because in your head, when you got home from that I think it was a brunch with your husband, right? Yeah. You had the thought of, maybe it was when you were at home, maybe it was when you were at the dinner, but you said in there, I want to sober up so I can drink more. (laughs) (laughs) And and we laugh about that, right? Like we laugh because it's it's an absurd thing. Yep. (laughs) But, and and this is the really cool part and where I think uh, you're going to have a good connection with a lot of people is you go in, you go into a dive on that and you go into it because of your background and you explain it. Here's what's going on. Here's what's going on biochemically in my brain. Here's why I feel that. So my whole thing while I was drinking is I wanted to know why I couldn't be like everybody else. Why can't I just drink like a normal person? That was always what I would wonder every single time I drank too much. Why can't I just drink like normal people drink? And when I decided that I had to quit, I became interested. What is the actual reason that I can't drink like everyone else? Why don't I have that voice in my head that takes care of me and tells me to to stop, that I've had enough? And that's what prompted all this research. And And it's really helped, like learning more about me and and that there's nothing like morally wrong with me has has helped the journey. And that's a big part of it, right? That mm-hmm. I think you've touched on that a number of times in the episodes that I've listened to is you would drink and then you would feel good. And then after a certain point of time, whether it was in the early morning hours or late evening or whatever, but you called it this wine shame. Yeah. That comes on. And the way you explain it as it's basically a chemical reaction in your brain, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff going on as the alcohol wears off. That's like the hangover is obviously the least desired part for most people. But as the alcohol is wearing off, that's when you're going to notice like really bad anxiety and crazy thoughts. And and that's just because your brain chemistry has been 
altered by just constant flow of alcohol and it thinks the presence of alcohol is normal. So as the alcohol is getting metabolized and eliminated, you're now not normal. And I really feel like I drove myself crazy in that last year. I was nuts by the end of it. Just all of the bad mental health and I would keep myself up, which is a form of self-harm. I wouldn't allow myself to sleep because of the shame feeling. So I would stay up and I would think about how bad I was. And I was so sleep deprived and it was horrible. By the end, I just, I relinquished control that I cannot drink. (laughs) I gave up. And you've done all of this without any kind of 12-step program, right? Yeah, I've thought about meetings more for the social aspect to have like real life sober friends. Um, But when I quit, it was so strong because I accepted that I am not someone who can ever drink. And a big part of that was that 90 day challenge that I did because I know no matter how long I give it up, I'll go right back into the same kind of drinking. So there's, so there are no doubts in my mind, something dangerous that happens to problem drinkers and alcoholics is when they get some sober time, they experiment and they start, they'll either drink and then they won't like the way it tastes or they didn't have fun or they were able to moderate. And then they'll think like, wow, I was able to moderate. I must not be that bad. And then they'll experiment again and then they'll be right back in the beginning. And because I removed all doubt, I know what would happen if I drank again. So my sobriety is, is super powerful. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. I don't, uh, again, anybody out there that however it is you want to better your life, whether you do it kind of like you're describing on your own through some, uh, I don't even want to say, I don't even know how to describe it. Basically like an aha kind of moment. Mm-hmm. Would, you, would you, is that a, <laughs> is that a true way to, do you consider that day that, afternoon and then evening nighttime with your husband that day was that like a rock bottom thing yeah I think that was my version of rock bottom I know everyone really has a different threshold for how much they're willing to take before they will take action but realizing that I could get drunk and accidentally kill myself that was a rock bottom because I I knew when I wasn't under the influence that I didn't actually want to die. And I was scared that, you know, I could get drunk and who knows what you could do. There's so many people that, that will attempt suicide and not succeed. There's people that will attempt and not succeed, but disable themselves for life. Or there's people that do succeed all the time. And it's really sad. And I didn't want to be one of those people. It just felt, it felt like that's where I was heading. The the other thing that's interesting too, is that you don't relate the alcohol to the anxiety. How have you, has there been any kind of like therapy in your own life for the anxiety type stuff? So I've been like in and out of therapy, basically the past 12 years. I love therapy. I encourage everybody to go I tell everyone all the time, are you in therapy? <laughs> you should go. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, 
The therapy has helped a lot with my depression, which is more powerful than the anxiety. The anxiety went away as soon as that middle of the night jolt stopped happening. The anxiety started becoming less and less, and now it's it's barely anything. But therapy has helped a lot with my depression, and it's helped with just adjusting to being sober in a culture that loves to drink. That was one of the things that I'm going to, I'm sure we'll get to it as well, is like this society, if you, I don't know, it, it's such a social structure to everything. It's like, hey, we're hanging out. It's after, who cares what time it is largely, especially these days, you know, mm-hmm. these last few months with quarantine. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm, or or you just reason it out, right? Well, I'm not driving anywhere. I'm not going anywhere for a while. Sure. You, you want a beer, you want a drink, you want a glass of wine, as it was in your case. It's a connector. You talked about triggers. I listened to the episode where you talked about the triggers and the things that you, you're using two different kind of approaches, and I might screw up the terminology, but basically you don't want to see somebody drinking wine, whether it's personally in, in your own space or out in a restaurant, right? Yeah, that is the thing that gets me. If people are drinking cocktails or beer, it's whatever. I even have beers in my fridge for my husband. That doesn't bother me, but because I really just loved wine so much, I was all about wine. It just kind of gets me. Like it doesn't it doesn't freak me out or or ruin my night. It just it creates stress. So when I quit, I asked my husband if he would please never drink wine around me. And some people might think that's really selfish, but that is how I need him to support me. And he's he's not like a big drinker. He's a normal drinker. So he can just drink beers once in a while or, or like a Mai Tai and he'll be fine. Yeah, wh- seeing wine is, is what gets me because it's such a ritual to it too. Like if you're in a restaurant, the way that they bring the bottle over and like open it and have you taste it. And the whole thing is just a ritual and it's, it's very romanticized. Do you consider yourself an alcoholic? I'm playing with that. Um, Okay. So I don't know. A lot of people will make assumptions because I say I'm not someone who can drink. So they immediately begin talking about my addiction, which is, it's like kind of cringy, honestly, <laughs> but um, I play with it. I mean, some people will say if you're not someone who can drink, you're an alcoholic. Um, I didn't experience any physical dependence when I quit. It was all emotional and mental dependence, um, but it's a word I'm playing with. I think you really have to decide, does this word empower you or does it not? And then go from there. That's one of the things that I'm sure you've ran across in talking with other people who are in a similar lifestyle that you are, is that power. Uh, I'm in the same boat as you as, as in the sense of like, I don't, I don't know the 12-step thing. Mm-hmm. I would probably say that I'm in that normal sense as well. I, can, I don't believe that I have an addictive personality. However, I have had my own bouts of phases in my life where I've used, just like you did, the alcohol to two steps in the door, bad marriage for mm-hmm. years. I need three drinks in 15 minutes or else <laughs> the rest of this night is going to suck, <laughs> you know? And, and, you know, again, we laugh at it. 
We're not making fun of it. We're not bringing any light to it. But it, we, I think we laugh at the absurdity of that. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm, I'm with you right there. And I don't consider myself to have an addictive personality or to be an alcoholic. But I will say, and clearly, and I've said this before, I have at times in my life been a drunk. And that's the person right there that I was talking about. You can't get two steps in the door without the alcohol. Mm -hmm. You can't do anything outside of your home socially without having a drink. And some of that was the, the, the personal circumstances at the time in dealing with stuff in my life personally and other stuff, uh, other part of that was the climate in that I, w- that I was in, you know, the people that I was surrounded by. I think that some people will be in a bad situation and they'll drink a lot. And the difference between me and normal people is they can stop doing that. And I can't stop doing that. I will drink that way if my life is perfect or if it sucks and anywhere in between, it doesn't matter. But for people, they might go through periods where they drink very heavily and then they can back it off. It's not like something that they have to use willpower or, or be uncomfortable with. It's just natural for them. And I think that's what a normal drinker is. As soon as you have to think about moderation, you're like me. You you used the words in one of the things you talked about, and I, I think I've heard you say it a few times, particularly one time, though, you said you have that one more voice. Yeah. So one more to, uh, and, and I think you said it a few different ways, like you would reason it out differently. One more to, what does that voice mean to you? And is it like, is it still there? Does it translate to other aspects of your personality? So the one more voice for normal drinkers, it would be your mind saying, hey, you got to work tomorrow. That's probably enough. We should go home. And then they go home and drink some water. And I don't have that. My voice says like three was fun. Four is going to be way more fun. And then (laughs) five will be even more fun. Like even if I'm and, and it gets worse, the more that I drink which is bad for me because when you're already drunk and then your mind is speeding up how often it tells you one more will be good, then you just escalate into like crazy drunk. And my husband says it really well. He jokes about it that when I have one, I want 100. And that's true. No matter what, no matter where I am, no matter if I have to drive or I'm somewhere where I'm uncomfortable or I'm at a work thing or I'm at home it does not matter. Once I have one, my brain's like, oh yeah, let's go. Uh, again, that's something that when I'm thinking back in my own times of mm-hmm. you know dealing with alcohol, I can relate with, I can totally hear myself saying, why not just another one? Or how many have you had? What difference does one more make? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. You know? laughs> and then again, you... Uh, Part of me, though, is is really lucky in that uh, I've I've never gotten into trouble. I'm I'm the same as you. Like, never had the DUI. Yeah. Never had any kind of uh, alcohol related uh, abuse type stuff that so many people get either domestically or non domestically. You know, like if you're out in public or something like that. It, you know, I consider myself extremely fortunate in that group and in that category that that hasn't negatively affected me. However, 
I know that in those states, you don't make the best decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you tend so, to make even worse decisions. Yeah, exactly. So how do you like, and, and that's the difference. That's the interesting thing. And I'm, I'm going to be very curious to keep listening to how you break that down in what the overall kind of, uh, you know, and underlying specific chemical differences are between, as you call them, the people who can have three or more beers and can be buzzed or have a bottle of wine and not decide to make those irrational decisions as opposed to other people who don't make that rational decision. They don't tell themselves, hey, you got to work in the morning or, hey, if you have that other drink, you're not going to be able to drive home. So what are you going to do then? Yeah. And my brain's like, you can drive home. You're cool. Just go slow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you did you actually, this is more of a personal thing too, like did you actually have times where you reasoned out the driving? Yeah, so when I was, so I drank, I started at 22 and then I was immediately a disaster. By 24, I was trying to figure out how I could moderate and how I could learn and I would try to practice. One of my moderation strategies was to drive myself because I thought, I am not someone who would ever put other people at risk. I really care about that kind of thing. I don't want a DUI and to just go through that whole thing. So I would say, well, if I drive, then I will be safe. And then I just would drink exactly the same <laughs> as I would if, if I took an Uber or my husband drove or I took the bus. It didn't matter. I just drank the same way. And then I did drive unfortunately, um, a good amount of times when I was young and it was horrible. And I, I hated myself so badly afterwards. And eventually I just said, I'm never driving anywhere ever again. If I know I'm going to be drinking, I can drive to work. I can drive to the gym and then I can come home and I will never drive anywhere else. And I took public transportation which is dangerous in itself when you're a drunk woman alone on, on public transportation in the Boston area. But yeah, I, I tried really hard and driving was supposed to work and it didn't. Again, you kind of, I hear that you're trying to limit yourself to the driving. You're throwing mm -hmm. up obstacles to keep yourself from drinking Yep. when the ultimate thing is just your own choice. Yeah, exactly. And when you're when you're a problem drinker, you don't want to hang out with regular people. You want to find people that are just like you that are ready to go. So when two problem drinkers get together, <laughs> they're going to drink more. I another moderation strategy at the end of my drinking was to stop being social. I was a lot of people's favorite drinking buddy and I I just stopped going out with people. And in an attempt to not drink so much. And it did help because people, they might be normal drinkers in their real life. And then when they go out with me once a month, it's their time to really party. So they would pressure me into drinking more or drinking faster than I wanted to. And it, it was always such a bad time for me. And yeah, I tried so many ways to moderate, like you said, obstacles, and none of them worked. It's very interesting that you you talk about that that whole you know we want to be around people who are like us, right? Yeah. And somebody who's maybe recognizing a similar behavior in themselves, 
and seeing that in you and being like, oh, I can do this. I can hang around with this person and then I don't feel so bad because, well, they, they look like they're okay. They're doing pretty good. So I must be okay, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's fascinating the way we, we reason things. And, and, I, mm-hmm. and again, we're not we're not laughing at it. We're not making fun of it or at all just to other than to shine a light on it like we really do go through some big obstacles here but again i think when you actually break it down the way you're doing it it's not all our fault it's not all your own lack of free will there's Mm -hmm. a big complex system in place here yeah exactly and a lot of people this reinforces their drinking and it did for me as well. But a lot of people will think I'm bad. I'm a loser. There's something wrong with me. And those thoughts make you feel terrible about yourself. And then you drink more because you feel horrible and you want to not feel that way. And what all of my research has shown me is it's, it's not your fault. The amount of alcohol that you drink It's not really a choice when you're a problem drinker. Once you start drinking, you're going to keep drinking until, you know, the alcohol runs out or you go to bed. I think that it's our responsibility to clean up our lives and and make amends and, and be better people, but it's not anyone's fault for being like this. It's like looking at someone who is is incredibly obese and thinking that they chose that life. They didn't choose that life. No one wants that life. And it's it's not your fault. It also sounds like you've got, uh, you know, and in, in you've mentioned it a couple times, your husband sounds like he's been an incredible support system for you. I'm curious, though, were you guys together before you started drinking? No. So I started drinking about a month before I met my husband and really like right in the beginning of our dating, I was like getting sick and I was just a big, big mess. (laughs) And he liked me anyways and, you know, married me and I just kept being a mess. He drank a lot more because of me and now he barely drinks, but he used to drink a lot just like me. But he could stop. Like once he had enough, he would stop and he would switch to water. And I always like would get mad at him in my head for that. Like, you're not going to keep drinking? Like we're, we're just starting to have fun. What's wrong with you? And then the next day when I would feel like pure death and he's getting up and going to exercise and my whole day is blown up because I'm sick, I, I would feel jealous even more. Yeah, so he never knew me this way until I quit. And he was scared, I think, for me to quit too because we had only been one way together. And part of that was what kept me trying to moderate. I was scared we wouldn't be able to connect because we always connected over wine. And I just desperately wanted to figure it out for him. I thought, like, you know, our marriage would be so much better if I could just learn how to moderate. How would you describe your relationship with him now? How has it changed and kind of evolved with this? Yeah, so it's it's a million bazillion times better. It's it's so much better. I was a little weird in the beginning because I was carrying this belief that we wouldn't be able to connect or it would be difficult to connect. So I was throwing up a barrier to connection. And then when I 
kind of relaxed, now we connect even more because we can actually talk to each other and not just have like a useless drunk conversation. Yeah, we're closer. We connect more often. And he's really proud of me. He writes me really nice cards. We always write each other a love note for for holidays or birthdays or anniversaries. And, and he writes me really nice ones. He got me balloons for my one month anniversary. So I like when he, he like celebrates and gets so excited for me. It makes me happy. I mean, that's awesome to have kind of that encouragement there right with you. Mm-hmm. Um, has he like kind of ever given you a better description of like a contrast to say, in other words, like, is he in in any given moment, like in an evening or a weekend, does he point out kind of like, hey, you know, I really like this better when when we used to do this or when we used to spend this time together before this is what happened and now X, Y, Z? We will talk about how we don't really fight that much anymore. Um, Drunk fights are the worst and they're so dumb. And um, (laughs) he... When he drinks a lot, he gets impatient. And when I drink a lot, I get sensitive. So that's a very bad mix. <laughs> so we yeah. would we would have really bad drunk fights. So he'll often, you know, just be happy for the fact that we don't do that anymore. And and now we can do so many more things where before, you know, we would we would have to like deal with each other's emotions and and fight. I think that's the biggest difference that he's noticed. Is the fighting and the clashing between those two different kind of feelings right there. Yeah. And he can sleep now too. So I guess that's, that's probably number one. Cause he, when I wasn't allowing myself to sleep for a year, he wanted to take care of me and help me. So he also didn't sleep for a year. So now he can just sleep normally and he doesn't have to, like, I can't even imagine when I would wake up in the middle of the night with really bad anxiety and self-hatred and it would wake him up. He just had to have known like we're in this for hours and hours and hours. And that must just be such an exhausting, defeating feeling to, to know that your sleep for the night is done. So I think that's his favorite part of my sobriety. And and it sounds like, you know, the, the, the damage um, if we can say it that way, you haven't talked about this on your own podcast yet, and I'm sure it's something that's going to come up is how we affect others mm-hmm. in that state. It doesn't sound like you two damaged each other to, to where, you know, you couldn't stand to be around each other. Obviously, you know, you're still together, which is great that he's supportive and that he's, you know, keeping you on this journey and, and backing you. In the damage in those fights that that is obviously present in your mind because you remember them, or do you remember them? Maybe that's what I'm trying to get at is I, I know when I, in my own doings, in my own drunken states or whatnot, I don't remember a lot. I, like there's times sometimes where you've drank too much, you can't remember. And I, I get that there's a chemistry thing behind that, your body doing those different things. But when you're in that state and you guys were fighting or arguing, was there ever like things that would hang over that would continue on that would, you know, be present the next day and they're kind of like, oh shit, what did I do? Yeah. So I, I'm someone who is prone to blackouts. Some people are, some people are not. 
and sometimes I would forget or sometimes the argument would be fuzzy, but a lot of them did carry over into the next day because we just stopped like wanting to, to deal with each other really. We had some pretty vicious drunk fights that that were really unfortunate that that did hurt our marriage I think we were we were heading to to a sad place in our marriage if I had continued drinking that way and I do think quitting like really saved it and now we have a very positive outlook how has your relationships with you know those types of friends and maybe coworkers, whatever it is, extraneous relationships outside of your home and outside of your family. How have those things changed in, you know, this nine months? So I lost some friends, which people probably don't want to hear, but it's bound to happen. Some people were not very supportive. They didn't want to lose that drinking buddy. I had people put their drinks up into my face, offering me a sip And I remember I was out on day 29 of sobriety and I was at a restaurant and I was telling this person like, tomorrow's day 30. I've never like not had a drink for a month. I'm so proud of myself. And then a couple minutes later, they said, I'll only order a drink if you do. And it's like, well, (laughs) I'm not. And now I feel like I'm ruining your time. And, And then I had another friend. I thought we were going out for dinner. And she had a glass of wine and I had a water. And then her boyfriend actually came into the restaurant to, we were sitting at the bar and came up to us to pick her up for dinner because I I guess I'm not fun anymore. But yeah, I thought we were meeting for dinner and I just went out for a water. And (laughs) so a lot of people had to just not be in my life anymore. But in that process as well, I've met some real champions, people that don't understand. I'm happy for them that they can't understand, but they know it's really serious. And just the support from them is so wonderful. The sober community is is just like the most encouraging, amazing group of people ever. Yeah, so even though I lost some friends, those those people weren't real friends. They were just people that you drank with so you didn't drink alone. I think that's one of the things that a lot of people are scared of is yeah. that you mentioned it. You're, what are you going to do? Like, I can't, I'm not going to be able to hang out with these people or how do I go to an after work happy hour or whatever it might be, whatever kind of social event. And then just, nope, nope, I can't do that because you've gone from one face or one side, one aspect to now a completely, you know, Mm -hmm. different kind of aspect to it. I think that is a big fear. And where did you find, you've mentioned that a number of times too, where did you find that sober community? How did you, if you're not going to meetings and you're not meeting people that way, how did you, how did you develop that? Yeah. So I, I creeped and lurked in sober Facebook groups for a full year before I even quit. And I would make really pathetic, sad, desperate posts and people would try to help me. And I was not someone who could accept help at that point. Then when I quit, 
they all knew me and they were all so happy for me. And I joined more groups. And so it's really been like Facebook groups. And then on Instagram, all the sober people just like support the other sober people. It's not like Instagram. The big thing is worrying about your ratio and of followers to people you follow and and like the the health and fitness community is is super toxic like that like no one will support each other but the sober community like everyone just wants to like each other's stuff comment on it congratulate you like every time there's a soberversary post there's like a hundred comments like good work we're so proud of you just from complete strangers and and it's because we all understand how much it freaking sucks and we want to help other people. Yeah, so sober groups are a mix of of people like me who are more like longer term, more comfortable people, people who are in the beginning. Sometimes there'll be people in there that are sober for 20 years. And then there's people who are struggling and can't really commit to it just yet. And everybody's welcome. Everybody's so nice. And that that support has helped me so much. And it helps you too because you know you're not alone. Well, you've mentioned that a few times. That was actually the next thing I was just looking at in my... So when you say that, what I take from that is that when you say, I should be more clear, when you say you are not alone, what I take from that is your realization that you're not alone and that maybe during those times of a year, two, five years, seven years, how long you've been drinking for, maybe during those times, part of the reason that you were drinking and it was the, well, this is my life. This is here. I'm, I'm just here. And this is what I'm dealing with. And you were, as they say, stuck in yourself. Mm-hmm. And so now I hear you saying, you, you know, you're not alone and putting that forward and putting that out there. Why is that so important to you to help others to make that same realization? So a few things. So, we all think we're unique and special and that nobody understands. Nobody's drinking is like mine, so they're not going to get it. And what you find when you interact with other problem drinkers is they're a lot more like you than you think. And your drinking is not unique to you. And there's a ton of people who can relate to it. And the reason that I decided to share, I really felt compelled to. Like I I couldn't stand not sharing. And that's because I know a lot of people who suffer with the same thing. Um, my my husband's friend from college actually passed away yesterday from oh. alcohol. Oh, awful. It was Sorry. very, very, very sad. And I know stories from people who have had accidents or they've tried to commit suicide when they were drinking. And they've either become like blind or they've succeeded. Just all of that makes me so sad because I truly believe that's alcohol. That's not us feeling that way. And I think if I can help even one person just question it a little bit, then I've like done my job. And a lot of like the big brands in the sober community are people who who really went hardcore and I, I'm not someone who's hardcore. I'm just a little scientist in the Boston area who likes to work out and doesn't go to parties. 
just for people to see, like, you don't have to be super hardcore and destroy your life to, to need to quit. I think that's helpful too. Like people who can't relate to those people, maybe they can relate to me and that can help like just wake them up. Like questioning it is so important. The things you talked about too, even in my own experience in listening to the podcast and talking to you now, I'm remembering in my own stuff, like the things I did, mm-hmm. you know, like we've talked about the, the reasoning, the, logic uh, logicizing i don't think that's a word but the making the logical connection to uh oh, this is okay this is all right and all just to keep that thing going to keep the the next drink on tap or on, on the way to you instead of just realizing it just saying hey maybe maybe i maybe i don't need that maybe maybe this is not the time for that maybe maybe there's a different way and i i think that that's where that's kind of where I see you're you're gearing towards is you're trying to the the podcast that you're doing is you're trying to take the the real emotional human experience and give the science behind it, give the reasoning behind it, but then you're also interjecting your own kind of life experience to it and it, it works. Well, thank you. Yeah, I want people to understand like there's nothing wrong with you. Like there you weren't born destined to have a life of failure and sadness and you you don't have like an addiction gene that's going to just make your life miserable for all eternity and it's because of just chronically drinking heavy amounts of alcohol it changes the body and it changes the brain and that's all it is and if people can disconnect just a tiny tiny bit they will see things are better on the other side. And I, that's all I want to show people is better over here. And my, my biggest fear was life is going to be boring and sad forever. I was convinced sober people were, they were losers and they were so boring. They never did anything or had any fun. <laughs> I really believed that. So why would I want to quit drinking? I loved having fun. Now I have more fun because I'm not sloppy. I don't ruin the night. I don't fight with my husband. I don't black out. I don't ruin every Sunday with a vicious hangover. So now life is more fun. But that's my point is just just to show people it's better over here. Just give it a shot. The other thing that you make a real point of to say is that your drinking was not wasn't the the problems that you felt as a result of the drinking or I don't want to say excessive drinking because you don't use that term, but we'll just say it as the problems you felt from the drinking were not physical problems, but they were mental problems. Yeah, I, I'm fortunate to not have any health issues. I did have um, a very fast resting heart rate in the 80s and I had high blood pressure for someone who's relatively skinny and I'm 30 now, but I quit drinking at 29 and I had high blood pressure. And that's something you don't think about, like how it connects to your heart. You just really think about like your liver. But yeah, my mental health took a huge hit from just all the alcohol I was drinking. And that's another thing people don't connect to. They think their drinking helps them with their mental health. And it's really causing the poor mental health that you're experiencing. And how long did it take for you to kind of feel those effects 
after you stop drinking? Is it, you know, a few days, a week? Mentally, I mean. Mentally, by day two, I was a, a lot better. And that kept me going because that was when I realized, like, wow, I don't actually want to kill myself. I'm not actually that depressed. And that realization made me stronger and want to commit more to my sobriety. The physical things, I think they take a bit of time. I lost, I lost a lot of weight. I lost 15 pounds. And again, I was a small woman before that, but I lost 15 pounds with effort, but not with like crazy effort. You just start to become a lot healthier. I remember I had a doctor's appointment where I could check off the box, like they ask about your drinking, and I could check off that I don't drink. And I actually like took a picture of it and posted in my <laughs> Facebook group. And they checked my blood pressure. And when I was drinking, it was usually 130 over 84. And now it's like 100 over 70. It's a huge difference just from like being a bit healthier and you feel better. Like when your blood pressure is that high and your heart's going so fast, just resting, like you feel terrible all the time. Are you going to go into more of that in the podcast kind of you can i guess in a general sense of you know when you're healthier your mental health is better when you're when you're physically healthier your mental health is better and how those kind of those two things kind of relate yes i i want to spend a lot of time on mental health and how that connects to everything i also am super excited about genetics and there's so many different things in the brain that I read a lot of um, knockout studies where they will get rid of that gene in in mice and then just see what happens. And there's a lot of different variants of genes that we have that can make you be more like me or more like my husband. And that stuff is so interesting. And so it's like I have a thousand things I want to talk about, but one 20 minute episode a week. But mental health will probably be like a series. And I want to also talk about like my experience, like what happened when I quit, like what started improving and why did it improve? When you're saying like a thousand things, I'm sure you keep a kind of notepad or something on your phone, like, oh, something triggers you, you just jot it down. Oh, I could talk about that or I could talk about this. And that's another thing that's really cool about the way you're doing your podcast is, it, it, you know, it's you talking and they're short, they're to the point, they're easy to listen to. And then you've mentioned trying or like maybe in the future talking with other people. You, I think you said you might like talk with some of your friends or whatnot. Am mm-hmm. I right? Yeah, so my first guest, I want to be my husband when he's comfortable. I want to talk about our relationship before and after me quitting drinking. I really want him to be like the first guest because that's really cool. But I think he would help people who are scared to quit. Just his reflection on my drinking and how he thinks that our marriage has improved coming from him instead of me, I think that that is a good source. But yeah, I also want to get people who have like experienced it themselves or people who are 
maybe experts. I hope to be an expert someday. Some of my cool sober friends, like one of my friends is publishing a book. Another one is a coach and he has his own YouTube channel. So I've met a lot of cool people that I want to expose everybody to. And But husband is number one. <laughs> I think that's a great idea. I think it would be especially from my own point of view in having just found your podcast and then in talking to you, the more you go on, the more I learn about you and the more we as listeners get an insight into what went on with you and how you're translating it into trying to help people and to try to understand this from the biochemistry background. The more you do that, the, the further you get. And then if you bring him in, it's going to be even better because we'll have this huge base of knowledge from you. And then we'll get to hear his side of the story and what he describes as knowing you when you were drinking and then knowing you after you stopped drinking. Mm-hmm. How do you think you're going to, what is your kind of mindset of how, when he's going to be comfortable to discuss that? His biggest fear is he's going to hurt my feelings. And I get that. I think him talking about the most painful thing I've ever gone through and how it sucked and it hurt our relationship, I think he's scared. He doesn't want to make me feel bad. I totally get that and respect that. And I think I'm just going to have to come up with some questions for him that that maybe can like guide him in a way to talk about it, but for him to feel comfortable that he won't say anything that's going to make me cry or something later. And then he'll have to like love me and apologize. And so I think that's his biggest fear is hurting me. Was he at any point close to maybe intervening? I don't think so. And this is something that we've talked about because in, in the past year of my drinking, especially, I was begging for help. Like, somebody help me. I can't live like this. I am suffering just to the max. I cannot suffer any more than I am suffering. I need you to help me. Just do anything for me. And nobody helped me. Like, that sounds really horrible for, you know, the people in my life that might listen to this. I had to learn how to like help myself and be my own champion. And, and I think it's like, I get it. It hurts me that no one tried to help, especially when I asked, but I get that it's an uncomfortable thing. People like really don't know how to approach and they could make it worse. He would try to help me like while I was drinking, which isn't going to go over well when you tell someone who's like drunk that they shouldn't have another one. Cause then they'll have 10 more, but (laughs) yeah. Yeah, so I think he just didn't know how. He didn't know what to do. And all he could do was be there for me when I was miserable in the night. And he would get me, like, care packages the next day. He'd get me, like, chips and Pedialyte. (laughs) But (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so it was hard for me. Well, what would you say to someone who's in your husband's spot, you know, as he was for those years? How do you think he could have approached that to be more helpful um, and maybe earlier? What's something that you've maybe thought of that would have been more kind of gripping or would have grabbed you a little bit better? I think what loved ones can do is 
not criticize or like other people have asked me like why'd you have to drink so much why couldn't you just drink less like don't criticize or or pass judgment on someone I think what what he could have done is in those moments that I was begging for help he could have come up with a plan uh we could have discussed it he could have asked probing questions like why is it so important for you to moderate how do you feel about never drinking again? What are you afraid of? What do you think about your drinking? Do you think you are someone who who drinks in a healthy way? Like I think getting the person to reflect is very helpful. Encouraging therapy to talk about it is great. He could have suggested like non-alcoholic drinks. I don't know if I would have gone for it, but um, yeah, <laughs> do they have I think a non-alcoholic wine. Yet they all suck. So I've <laughs> <Do> they, okay. <laughs> I've tried so many of them, and they're like sugary juice. I actually have one that I'm obsessively checking my front door. It should arrive very soon. But I heard it's really, really good. It's from Canada, and if it's good, I'm gonna just announce it for the entire world. Like drink this wine, and they even have like I ordered rosé, which is my drink. And so if that is good, that is going to change my whole life. <laughs> but they're just not good. Like mocktails are really great. When I go out, like I always have the bartender just surprise me. And that's really fun. Non-alcoholic beers taste exactly like regular beers. So like we'll go out and he'll get a Heineken and I'll get a non-alcoholic Heineken. And everybody always thinks we're really cute. But yeah, non-alcoholic beers are fantastic, but I wasn't a beer drinker, so I don't know if that would have helped me. And then the other thing I was thinking about when you were talking about that and asking for help is you, you mentioned you were in therapy. Did you ever bring this up to ask whoever you were talking to for help? So I went to a therapist a little over two years ago, and I was like, I think I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Is, is my drinking bad? I don't even know. Like, how do I know if I'm an alcoholic? And she encouraged me to not drink for one week and just see. She's like, if you're an alcoholic, maybe that'll be really, really hard for you. Let's just see what happens. That freaked me out because by that point, I had been drinking every day for, for like five years and I made a solid plan, like, this is what we're going to do Monday. This is what we'll do Tuesday. And I planned out the entire weekend. So we had all this fun stuff to do. And I did it. And then, you know, I just went right back to regular drinking for a while. When it came time to really quit, I knew that I could do it because I had done a sober week and I had done more importantly a sober weekend and I actually did have fun so it was less daunting I think you just have to like prove to yourself that it's not that bad and that you can do it and the more you prove that the easier it gets I think that's uh it's just a practice thing right is what I'm hearing you yeah well, I, I mean that's actually that's kind of condescending for me to say it's more than just a practice thing because it's a, there is the chemical things that are going on and there's things that we can't control outside of just removing yourself yeah. um, you know, from those things. But practice does help, but it doesn't prove that, that that's kind of the thing I'm, I'm also curious about mm -hmm. is 
and you've started the, to talk about this a little bit, where's our actual diagnosis? If we're calling this a disease and, you know, that it's affected by the chemistry in our brains and stuff that happens in our body that's probably outside of our control and maybe there's the genetic factors linking these things together, are we going to get to the point where we can actually diagnose somebody on scientific data and a scientific basis as being an alcoholic as opposed to just somebody who maybe loses a little bit of control from time to time? So eventually it could, I don't know if there's like even interest to do this or not, but the way like breast cancer screening is done, like if you have that gene, it could be something like that. Like there's different genes that make you, there's not an alcoholic gene, but there are genes that make it a lot easier for you to go that route. And then there are other variants of the same gene that are more protective. So an example would be like the enzymes that process alcohol in the liver. If you process alcohol really, really well, then you're more at risk because you handle it better. But for a lot of people, and especially people of Asian descent, they do not process alcohol well, and they build up a lot of the toxic intermediate that's 10 times more toxic than alcohol is. And that's why they feel sick. So they get flush, and their heart beats fast, and they get a headache, and they feel nauseous. And so if you drink and you feel horrible while you're drinking, it's more protective. So I hope that makes sense. So there are genes that can promote you developing a problem and genes that can like protect you from it. Is that kind of a cultural thing then that we could say is a norm? You said people of Asian descent or uh, I think you would say descent or genealogy or whatnot. I guess I've never heard that maybe they don't have as high uh, an alcoholism rate? Yeah, so they definitely don't. So I can give you another example. So Native Americans and white people have Mm -hmm. very similar genetics, but Native American people die more often of alcohol-related issues than other ethnic groups, like in the U.S. entirely, not just white people. So even though they have very similar genetics to white people, they have more prevalence of alcohol abuse, and that's environmental. So it comes down, it's really 50-50, actually, which is easy to talk about. So it's 50% coming from your genetics, and it's 50% just to what you've been exposed to growing up, the friends that you have, what your parents were like. So that's why even though they have the same genetics, they have more alcohol abuse. It's because they're environmental factors contributing. Nature and nurture, right? Is that the right term? Yep. Yeah, exactly. Well, I guess that's where you would start to, to, you know, kind of delve into it. I'm sure somebody's done this probably for a long time is why the heck would there be a difference then? Why is it that somebody who has a Native American descent has, you know, those those differences genetically as opposed to someone with an Asian descent. Where's the, what's the benefit? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question. And I, I have no idea what the answer is. But yeah, it's just like branching off. Like, has it always been that way? And I know there are people of Asian descent who can, you know, get their drink on just like I can. But 
more often there are people who can't. And yeah, I just think all that stuff is so fascinating. Like, why are there even different variants of the same thing? And it's just so cool how different we all are. Yeah, I, I mean, you you can break it down now so easily because we all have access to it, you know, through $99 or $59 yeah. DNA tests, you know. All of my kind of genetic background is from Western and Middle Europe, you know, Italian, English, a little bit of Irish, and then like Norway and Sweden. Mm-hmm. So obviously there's the there's the big one right in there the Irish like oh you've got a little bit of Irish in you therefore you probably like to drink right Yeah that is such a common question <laughs> like people ask me all the time are you Irish is that Well you're like... from Boston too it doesn't help Yeah <laughs> I am Irish but <laughs> Okay see Yeah so I just proved it <laughs> Have you done one of those tests then have you traced it back I haven't. I would like to, actually. I think that would be really fun. I know I'm like Irish, Scottish, Polish, English, and probably some other interesting stuff. But yeah, I'm just very Caucasian. (laughs) Yeah, and those are all the people that are classically stereotypically (laughs) known to be, you know, (laughs) being able to drink anybody else under the table largely. And, And, you know, and again, but the funny part about that is, in that if we switch from there, if, if you're looking at Europe and you look at the countries you just described, and then you go straight south into France and uh, Italy, Australia, uh, not Australia, Austria, uh, maybe not so much Austria, but those people drink a lot, but they don't, they're not alcoholics. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I don't, yeah. you don't hear of a big problem and maybe just because we're here in the U.S., but I don't hear of a big, nobody ever talks about Italians being big drinkers or the French, right? Yeah, everyone admires the French for how thin they are and <laughs> and how they drink a lot and, you know, they just have one and, yeah, we're just not like them. No, yeah, exactly. I've, I've been to Italy. I know, like, they yep. drink all the time. They'll drink with breakfast. It was so surprising to me how much they, uh, you know, would just... And I thought it was maybe at first like, oh, it's just this restaurant. But no, everywhere you go, any time of day, if you're sitting at a table eating, they're going to bring you a house wine or they're going to offer it to you and you watch and you see everybody else is also drinking and it's like, okay. But you're not noticing around the streets of you know rome and venice where i was people just wandering around drunk off their feet it's it's this weird kind of cultural moderation yeah and i think that i love europe i just started traveling in a big way a year ago and we did we did france italy and spain you know everyone was day drinking i was like this is great i should live here I love to day drink. And I think now, new me, when I go travel and it's just so normal and they offer to you and it's like free if you're on a tour, I think that's going to be extremely challenging for me. Just like how normal and cool it is. Like even at my company, we have alcohol in the fridge and like wine and stuff. And 
it's just so normal that I'm I'm weird and people notice that I'm different and it's harder in the beginning obviously but I think certain situations like vacations will be extremely difficult I saw your picture when um you had you talked about being hung over <laughs> and climbing Mount Vesuvius Yep that was that vacation the, the cruise you, you were talking about earlier. Okay, so that makes sense. And um, first off, I don't know how you did that hungover. Like, that would that's impressive in and of itself. It probably speaks to good physical health um, on your on your own part as well. But then the kind of regret that you mentioned in that post as well is like, yep. I didn't really enjoy it because you were nauseous and not able to. I'm, I'm sure you're not, you're just not able to be as present because you're just so distracted with being sick feeling. Yeah. You're not focusing on the beautiful sights. You're focusing on, oh my God, this is the hottest place in the world. I feel <laughs> so sick. I hope I don't throw up here. I don't know how I'm going to make it up. Oh my God, another hill. <laughs> and you're just focused on that. And you're missing like, this is the place you wanted to go for 10 years and you're here. Like, look around. So. Yeah, drinking brought that vacation down a lot. And that was the vacation that I was talking about where I went right back into my bad drinking. So I knew at that point how sober life was good. Yeah, I do regret that I didn't do that trip sober. And we're actually going to do the same trip again in the next few years. Just repeat it and have a better time. And then you said, you know, it might be a challenge in looking at it now to maintain that sobriety in that same kind of uh, environment, right? Yeah, they gave us free alcohol on every tour we did for lunch. And then on the cruise, it was obviously free as well. So they would just walk over and keep filling up your glass or you would sit down and there'd already be a bottle of wine there because wine is my thing. And that's the thing that gets me like, I don't know. My husband's going to have to go like move the wine <laughs> and then I can come sit down. Yeah. And and you're going to do more learning just as you have in the last nine months of how, how to deal with that differently yeah. and developing the, those different strengths and whatnot. And, you know, from, from sounds of it now, I don't think you're going to have a problem with it at all. Trying to be, you know, as encouraging as I can, because I think it's great, you know, in what you're doing. Thank you. What what has been the reception? When when did let's start with when did the first episode come on? So it's only been five weeks. It's a little baby podcast. Um, <laughs> the reception was it was both really amazing and also a bit disappointing. I think when you when you put yourself out there and you you do something that you think is fantastic, you expect your family and friends to also think it's fantastic and it's the best thing ever and just like support the crap out of you. And almost nobody listens to it that knows me in real life. One of my friends from work listens to it. He's one of the champions that I was talking about who does not understand in any way, but he listens to every single episode, which is just so nice. My mom listens and my husband's a little bit behind, which I gave him crap about yesterday. <laughs> but um, other than that, nobody that I know has listened. And that's a lot of like family and friends that are missing out on this great podcast. But 
So that's the negative. That that hurts in the beginning when you just expect them to care and they don't. Aside from that, I think all the new friends that I've made and the reviews people leave me, oh my God, those are so nice. And just people like telling me how much they've learned or requesting to learn something else. It's It's been great. And I love when people just say that it's helped them and that it makes them think differently and that it's, that it's interesting too because that's the worry. Like some of the episodes are really scientific and I don't want to like, bore anybody or, or make people not understand. And just so I like compliments is overall the point. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. It's good to get the it's always good to be vulnerable as best you can and then to have it received. And I, I think actually sometimes it might be even better to have it received by strangers because you're like, you don't yeah. owe me anything. Like why? Uh, if this must be real. You must really like this because uh, you're not getting any benefit from me. It's not like I'm making you an extra sandwich for the next time we get together or something <laughs> like that. Exactly. You know? When I released the last night drinking episode, a lot of people messaged me privately and told me that they felt the same way. And hearing me talk about it really helps them because they didn't know that it was like a thing. And I've had people who do not struggle with this, but know people that do listen and they use the information to try to help the people that they care about. And just that it it makes an impact on people is so cool. That's that's the best part. Compliments are good for my ego. But what helps me, um, like when I go to bed at night, is that I know that this has helped some people. Yeah, and, and the impact is never, ever going to be completely understood. Mm-hmm. You, you, some people that will listen and be moved in one way or another won't even reach out. And in fact, the large majority, I think, probably won't even re- reach out. As much as we love that, some people get a little bit shy or... Exactly. Who, who knows, right? Like, maybe they just don't want to... Maybe they don't know how to compliment people. I don't know. Whatever. And that's fine. I, I get the same thing. I totally understand that same thing. But when you do get those people that are affected in some way and then they let you know, man, it's just... it's It's that... It's kind of like the dopamine thing you were talking about, right? It's got to be a very similar type thing in our brains. Yeah, yeah. It's so cool. And and you don't know where, you also don't know when. You put an episode out, uh, you did two of them yesterday, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're doing one every Friday. Yeah. But you don't know if if someone listening a year from now or a week from now or an hour from now is going to hear that and how it's going to be affect them. And it's cool because it just sits there. It's readily available. People can listen, uh, you know, at their will, at their office, in their car, on their commute, mm-hmm. um, while they're exercising. It's just such a great medium and platform. And uh, I mean, it's cool that you found this and you kind of had that I, that kind of snap to idea of, of doing it this way. I, I'm excited for you. It's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I enjoy explaining. I was a teacher for a while. And so I just like explaining things to people. So you can do that through writing, but not as well through speaking. So I've enjoyed the whole process. And 
and also talking to other podcasters like you and, and just meeting people like the podcasting community is so cool. I would never have met anyone in it had I not started my show. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the things I take such a good positive from all this is the self-learning and then the, the networking and the connections and just the human interaction of it is just awesome. Like Andrew and I are, you know, we haven't met since I was on his show. Oh, shoot. That had to be a, a bit back in May or April. Mm-hmm. But, you know, n- now uh, us talking, your post yesterday, me interacting on it, or, or I'm sorry, his post and then me interacting on it. And then we kept talking via text, him and I, and then now we're going to go grab coffee or breakfast tomorrow morning. Like your show was a catalyst (laughs) to that. You know what I mean? Like that's really cool if you actually trace it back that way. Yeah. And stuff is so random too. Like he probably thought nothing of it, just sharing something that he likes. And yeah, it just sets... That's why I try to like share a lot of things that I like. I don't want to just like tell everybody, listen to my stuff, consume my stuff. I try to share other content that I really enjoy or share like other people's posts and, and just like get it out there. Cause I'm, I'm not for everybody, but maybe I can help you find someone who really does help you. That's exactly it. You don't know, you know, I don't know your connections. You don't know my connections. Mm -hmm. So if we both kind of, post things that are helpful that we find helpful through whatever way in in our own self but it's through another person or it's from another person and you post that out it's something so simple and so easy and i think a lot of it um especially with podcasts because there is so many it's how people do find a lot of newer yeah type podcasts like you and i we don't have big marketing companies or big studios behind us with you know giant budgets and whatnot so it's the organic growth to it right is the kind of the term I'm looking for yeah and the connections really matter and and just showing your listeners that you care about them yeah the whole thing I just want people who need this to hear it so whatever I can do to make that happen is is what I'm gonna do what kind of um have you thought like long term what kind of goals or projections you have uh, you know for for yourself and as far as podcasting goes as with the show so I want to be considered an expert in addiction science I have been playing with the idea of going back for a PhD in addiction science just because I really love to learn but either way I want to be known as an expert and I eventually would like to write a book that does exactly what my podcast does, like talking about the science and weaving in my my personal story. Just like get all that info out there for everybody who needs it. I love when people like request things too, like the sugar episode I did. Um, that was a request by a few people actually, because sober people love sugar. So it's fun for me, like when people ask for a topic that I wasn't planning on doing and then I can I got lost in the whole of research and <laughs> so it's it's helping me too and it's helping me learn and and stay motivated and stay excited about not drinking in the summer is definitely a lot harder so now that I've launched in the summer it's been helpful well good yeah it's it's another outlet like you mm-hmm. said or you know we said earlier it's another way for you to 
keep the lady behind the wheel in your head busy. I've talked about that with other people. Like, I have to keep that little man in my head <laughs> busy or, you know, he gets into trouble. And this is the outlet I use, not only the podcasting, but helping other people, uh, you know, whether it's dealing with, you know, stuff with that or whatever in their life. I think it's just a large thing. For me, it's the do the next right thing, you know, do whatever you can do to help somebody because uh, you don't know where it's going to come back to you. Mm-hmm. And we're just very fortunate in that we live in this time and era where we can connect from hundreds, thousands of miles away, record this, put it out to the world, and somebody in, you know, New Zealand can hear it, <laughs> you know, and have no tangible connection to you at all. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, your voice is, you know, three inches from their ear. I mean, yeah. it's awesome. I love to um, look at the thing um, that tells you your listener locations, and mm-hmm. some of them are so far away. It's like, how'd they even find this? I know. I I still baffle at how people find it. It's like, okay, I don't know where where did you find that, but uh, you know, however you found it, that's cool. Glad you're here. Glad you're listening. Uh, hopefully, I don't talk about things that you can't, you know, <laughs> kind of relate to on, a, on our American kind of. Americanized podcast mm-hmm. or whatever you want to say. I, I try to be as culturally sensitive as you can. I just and I I think that's more my personality anyway. I just love all people. I'm I'm very similar to you in that I I just like learning. I love the interactions. I love the connections, and this feeds that. And it's such a great way to help other people and to share you know their stories out because you know the first first thing I saw of yours. I was like, instantly, I okay, I got to talk to this person. Not <laughs> if anything for the human interaction of hearing somebody else's story and relating on some other level to it than the black and white words on a phone from a post, you know? Mm-hmm. Let other people know, whoever's listening right now, kind of where they can get some more information from you and kind of... Uh, where you're available at, how to connect further with you or what more you want them to do if they have questions or whatnot. Yeah. So I'm sober powered on everything. Instagram. I have a Facebook group. That's the name of my podcast and the name of my blog. Um, So I do encourage people to reach out via DM or private message. If, if you have a question about what you want to learn about, or you, you want to tell me your own story. So Feel free to reach out anytime and sober powered is everywhere. World domination eventually. <laughs> I like it. There, there's another person that I follow and I think he follows my the podcast page. It's like sober ginger. Oh, I, I like him. He's really nice. Yeah. <laughs> I saw that he had uh liked uh, a few of your pictures as well, and I was like, Oh, we have like a a kind of off mutual connection. Yep. I don't know that person, but I don't like, know oh, him that's either. Cool. <laughs> you know, but maybe someday you can talk to him and, you know, get his story and kind of where he's at. He's he's probably around the same time frame as you, yeah. I think. He's it's relatively recent for him as well. Yeah, and I love his stuff and he does videos, which is something I need to get out of my comfort zone and do more. Um, so shout out to Sober Ginger, you're killing it. I started out this episode reciting a quote that says, starting is the miracle. But maybe the real miracle with some people in sobriety is starting 
and then enduring. Everything I've ever seen or heard on sobriety describes it with a certain difficulty about it, that it's a daily struggle. And like all things in life, time and practice makes that struggle a little bit more tolerable, but the difficulty remains. So to those of you who are making it through that today, I'm proud of you. And that includes my friend Jill, who is now well past a year sober. Congratulations. But even if you're only a day into your journey, congratulations to you as well. I hope that I have been able to bring you another tool through Jillian's podcast that will help you through the tougher days you may have ahead. And a special thank you to Jillian for all the time and dedication to this journey she's on. Make sure you go and check out her podcast. And if you're not already following her on Instagram, you're really missing out. I told her just this morning that her Instagram stories alone are simply killing it. The content she shares is so creative, and she really does an amazing job just engaging with her followers. Watching her immense growth in such a short time has been a real treat for me. You're a true joy to the world, my friend, and you're going to affect a lot of people. And a special random shout out here too, as while I'm recording this, it just happens to be Ryan Delahousie's birthday. Happy birthday, Tough Strings. Can't wait to see you again and watch you kick ass on that violin, mandolin, piano. I mean, the guy plays everything, right? Anyway, hope it was a great day, Ryan, and a happy birthday again. Finally, thank you for listening to this special episode of Just Sway. Make sure you follow the show on the social media, Facebook, Instagram, and I'm going to be doing a live Instagram with Jillian on January 21st at 8 Eastern, 7 Central. So if you have some questions for her, make sure you pop on in, and I'll try to make sure we get them answered. Try to get to as many of them as I can. If you miss the live airing, I'll make sure that I save it to the Just Way Podcast Instagram page, and you can always go back and watch it later. I appreciate you listening here today, and until the next time you hear my voice, keep graceful dancing. And you're a superstar on your own.